0: Thanks for listening to the Sub-25 podcast. Sub-25 is a ministry of Gardendale First Baptist Church for 18 to 25-year-olds. Tune in as we learn how to live as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Go ahead and grab a seat. So good to see you guys tonight. I know there's a lot of other places you could be. It's a summer night, and uh, we're so excited that you chose to be with us tonight. Uh, If I haven't met you, my name's Madison. I'm one of the pastors here at Gardendale First Baptist, and I would love to get to know you before the night is over. You brought your Bible, open it to Revelation chapter 2. So, uh, this summer we've been in a series called Broken Church. Um, If you are a believer, then you would agree with me that you are broken. And what we see is that in in Revelation chapter 2, there are seven churches that are mentioned, and each of these churches are broken in some way, whether that be because of an issue in their life or maybe they're persecuted in some form or fashion. And so we've been walking through these seven letters and seeing, okay, what is God saying to these specific churches, and how does that apply to us? See, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, then that means you're a part of the church. And so when we study these passages, Jesus' words to these churches, I believe there's something uh, that we can learn from them. How many of you have ever taken a personality test? You've taken those? You answer some questions, and you figure out, oh, I'm like a golden retriever, or I'm like a lion, or whatever. Well, when we look at these uh, letters, what we see is that there's characteristics, and these characteristics describe different churches. And honestly, I think we can see ourselves in these letters because we see different circumstances, different issues. So the first letter we talked about was the letter at Ephesus, a a church that worked really hard, but they were lacking in love. And then last week, we talked about the church at Smyrna. And this was a church that was uh, going after the Lord with everything that they had, but they were being persecuted. They were being uh, persecuted, going through all sorts of trials. And so tonight, we're going to be looking at a different church, the church at Pergamum or Pergamos. And so hopefully, you found Revelation chapter 2. But before we jump into this, uh, earlier this week, I was looking uh, just as I was preparing for this message, and I found an article that talked about some of the safest buildings in the whole world. And I saw this, listen, I started to look at this and one of the buildings, and you may be familiar, whether you're a history person or you just are into all kinds of random facts, uh, but Fort Knox. And, and I looked at the security measures that they had at Fort Knox. And if you don't know anything about Fort Knox, Fort Knox houses a lot of the U.S.'s gold and silver. And, and, and so I was looking at this and this article talked about how there's 5,000 tons at least 5,000 tons of gold at Fort Knox. And this gold sits behind a 22 ton door. That's how much it weighs. And not only that, but this vault door, it locks using a combination that involves at least 10 different staff people. And each person has a different combination that he or she only knows. So, again, this is a highly secure location. To add on top of that, this place is surrounded by Apache helicopters, tanks, fences, guards, concrete, lined line granite walls, and alarms. So you're probably not going to get into Fort Knox. Like You may be able to sneak into Walmart or a place like that, but Fort Knox is going to be a little bit harder. And the reason the security measures are so intense is because of what is inside. And you can think of all sorts of buildings. Maybe you work at a place and you have to have a badge to get in. Even here, I've got a a key fob because there's certain locations at this church that you can't get unless you have a key fob because something is beyond that door and we're trying to protect it. And what I want us to understand tonight is that there is a church that we're about to study. And this church contained something that was incredibly valuable. And, and and it wasn't just this church that contained something valuable, but the church. So if you're a Christian, then you contain something valuable. But what this church didn't do is they didn't protect what was inside. And so we're going to study that tonight. So if you found Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, we're going to read this. says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, or Pergamum, write, These things says he who has the sharp, Two-edged sword. Now, I want to pause right there. Now, if you remember last week, when we look at each of these letters, they all follow a same pattern, a similar pattern. In each letter, Jesus is the one who's communicating something to the church, and in each letter, he's described in a different manner that pertains to the situation of whatever's going on in this letter. So right here, it says that Jesus is described as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Verse 13 says this, "'I know your works and where you dwell.'" And where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. And did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will, I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we can study your word. Thank you that we can read it, and we ask tonight that you would speak to us through the power of your Spirit. God, we've just got just finished singing what we believe. We believe in you. We believe in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And I pray that tonight that we would walk away believing even stronger in that and that we would protect what we believe. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, here's what we're going to learn. We're going to learn that as Christians that we need to defend right doctrine. We need to defend right doctrine. So let's jump into our text. Revelation chapter 2 verse 12, Jesus is described as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now all of these descriptions that we see of Jesus at the beginning of each of these letters are actually described in Revelation chapter 1 as well. You may have picked up on this each week as we look back. So if you turn with me to Revelation chapter 1 verse 16, we see a similar verse revelation chapter 2 verse 12 revelation chapter 1 verse 16 it says this he had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword so remember john is having a vision here if you've never read revelation when we come to things like this it is bizarre i mean john is seeing jesus and this sharp two-edged sword is coming out of jesus's mouth Quite creepy, if you ask me. Scary. If you walked and you saw somebody with a sword coming out of their mouth, I would be a little bit freaked out. But remember, John John is having this vision, and he's recording this, and he's describing Jesus in this way for a particular reason. So this leads me to say, what in the world is this sword about? Again, if we look at the characteristics we've talked about in the past letters, Jesus was holding the seven stars in his hand. He was walking them on the seven golden lampstands. And we saw that that meant something. So what does it mean that Jesus has this sharp, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth? I want us to look at a few different passages and kind of piece this together. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. You can jot that down. You can turn there, just listen to me, read it. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says this, for the word of God... "...is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit." And of joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So, isn't it interesting that the word of God in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, is described as a sharp, two edged sword? Now, if you look at Ephesians chapter 6, maybe you've heard people talk about the armor of the Lord, the armor of God. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, he says, Hey, put the whole armor. You maybe maybe you've even heard a song when you were little. You learned a song about the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. Well, in Ephesians chapter six, verse seventeen, Paul says this: "Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God." Isn't it interesting? Again, we see sword, we see the word of God. If we continue to look, we see John chapter twelve, verse forty-eight. It says this: "He who rejects me." and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. We need to understand that this, that this sword that is coming out of Jesus' mouth, it represents the word of God, which represents truth and justice. Because what we just read in John chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus says this, he who rejects me, So the person who says, hey, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe in what he taught, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. That person will receive judgment. People have said this, uh, the person who is not believing in Jesus right now has God's wrath sitting on them. We talked last week about how there is a second death. When this life comes to an end, our souls continue on, And those who do not believe in Jesus will take place in the second death. They will endure God's judgment. And so this this sword that's coming out of Jesus' mouth, we need to understand that this is God's word, which represents truth and justice. So your first point tonight, if you're taking notes, is this. Jesus is the the source of truth, the source of truth. And you can also write in judgment as, as well if you want. Jesus is the source of truth. As I was preparing for this, I came across another article. And this article talked about how to spot fake news. Some of you are probably tired of the news. You try and stay away from it. But then some of you, maybe you really like news and and you like to try and see what there is. And maybe you know somebody that's old in your life. Uh, For instance, there was a, I don't know if you ever heard of the the Babylon Bee. Uh, It's a satirical website that puts out articles regarding the church and stuff. And it's all it's all false. It's just funny stuff. And one time an article got shared and somebody thought it was legit. And the article was about a pastor who put a water slide on stage and was trying to baptize people. It was a fake article. But somebody somebody messaged our staff and they're like, can you believe they're doing this? And It's like, hey, this is a fake article. You see, we live in a day and age where there is some fake news out there. So this article talked about how to spot fake news, and they listed all these different characteristics you could could do. But here's the the reality, that we live in a society that wants to know what's true. I want to know what's true. I I hope you want to know what's true. As a society, we want to know what is true. We don't want to be deceived. We don't want to be led astray. I'm reminded of a passage in John when Jesus is about to be crucified. It's before the moment where everybody was crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus is having a conversation with Pilate. And listen to what this conversation looked like. John chapter 18, verse 37. Pilate therefore said to him, to Jesus, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate, he asks a question that people have been asking for the ages. He says this, what is truth? What is truth? If I were to go to UAB, if I were to go to downtown to a business and I were to ask people, hey, what is truth? I would get all sorts of answers. Perhaps if I asked some of you, hey, what is truth? Some of you may give some different answers. What we need to understand is that Jesus is the source of truth. In in John chapter 1, verse 17, John writes this, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Another popular verse that you may have heard, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth. I'm the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Apart from Jesus and his word, we cannot understand where we fit in this world. Apart from Jesus and understanding who he is and what he has done, we will be searching to find our place. Again, I've had conversations with people before about purpose. Hey, what's your purpose in life? I don't know if you've ever thought, hey, what's your purpose in life? Again, if you ask that question, people a lot of times will say, well, I, I don't really know. See, apart from Jesus Christ, we can't understand our purpose. He's the source of truth. I don't know if you are familiar with Bear Grylls. He's got the TV show where uh, he takes some of the celebrities out nowadays, and he like, does adventure with them. So if you've seen the show, then you've seen where Bear is oftentimes dropped out of a helicopter somewhere, and he's in the middle of nowhere and these celebrities are out there, and they're trying to survive for a day or two. Imagine that you were with Bear Grylls, and you don't really know where you're going, but you get in a helicopter, and you're dropped in the middle of nowhere. And then Bear says, hey, by the way, I'm getting out of here, uh, and you got to do this on your own. Like, I don't, know about, I don't know about you, but I would be terrified. And I wouldn't know where I was, and I wouldn't know how to get out. We've heard these horrible stories in the past where people go off, and, and they go hiking, or they're going camping somewhere, and they get lost, and they can't figure out where they're at. And it comes to find out when it's all said and done, they were only a couple miles from a, from a main road, but they didn't realize where they were at. You see, that is where the world is apart from Jesus Christ. The world apart from Jesus Christ is in the middle of the wilderness, not sure where to go, what to do, and so what happens? People just walk in a direction hoping to find their purpose, hoping to find truth. But unless we know who Jesus is and unless we have his word to guide us, We cannot know how we fit in the scheme of everything. And so understand that Jesus is the source of truth. And this church, Pergamum, they had this truth. They had it. They understood who Jesus was, and they were following him to a certain extent. But let's continue to look at our passage and see kind of what's going on. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 13 says this. Jesus says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So last week, we talked about the church at Smyrna, church at Smyrna. We don't know a lot about the church at Smyrna other than what we see in Revelation chapter 2. We also don't know a lot about the church at Pergamum outside of what we see uh, in this passage right here. Now, here's the thing. If we look at extra biblical history, we can find out some information. But if we just look at our text, we need to understand that this church, this group of believers lived in a hostile environment. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think hostile, but John writes, again, he's writing what Jesus is saying. He said that where they're at is the throne of Satan. And people kind of debate what that means, but we'll just conclude tonight that this is an extreme hostile location that opposes Jesus, opposes the truth, a place where all sorts of other things are worshipped, all other ideas are shared. And this was a tough, tough location for Christians to live. Now, if we think about our context today, if we think about hostile places, I, I want to mention a few of those. Uh, There's a ministry called Open Doors which advocates for Christians who are being persecuted. They try and get the word out so that believers can be praying for these persecuted churches. And and oftentimes they will come up with lists that they conclude are the most hostile places for Christians to live. And they come up with this list based off of known persecution, whether that be something the government does, whether that be um, just things that they hear. And so I want to I give you this list. There's 10 countries. First off, we see the country of North Korea. and North Korea, Christians are regularly imprisoned in labor camps. The next we have Afghanistan. This country does not recognize any of its citizens as Christians. We have Somalia. Uh, a particular person said this about Somalia, that it is not possible to be a Christian in Somalia just because of the level of persecution. Another one is Sudan. Sudan, uh, we see there the Muslim government has slated Christian churches for demolition. And we don't face stuff like this. Imagine you're a part of a church uh, in a place like Sudan, and you hear that, hey, they're going to wipe out the location where we worship. They're trying to destroy all churches. Pakistan. In Pakistan, there are multiple Christians that are awaiting death because they've been imprisoned. And they're simply waiting on death row. Uh, Another country, Eritrea. Certain Christians experience governmental harassment there. In fact, in this particular country, we see that there are many Christians who are right now in prison. And you can read about them. You can read their stories. I'll tell you a story in just a moment about somebody from that country. Libya. The government is reportedly training militants to attack uh, Coptic Christians in Libya. Iraq. Iraqi Christians have yet to return to their homelands after expulsion by ISIS. Yemen. In Yemen, there are severe restrictions for Christians. Iran. In Iran, Christians regularly face systematic, ongoing, egregious violations of religious freedom. So we see in many places. Now, oftentimes we think, oh, well, you know, here in America, there's, there's not much hostility to Christianity. And there is to a certain degree, but I want you to understand this is that when we talk about the church, then that includes believers all around the world, and you need to understand that there are brothers and sisters in Christ that are in different countries, and they live in extreme hostile environments, and they're being persecuted for what they believe. The Voice of the Martyrs is another ministry that focuses on persecuted believers. And they have a list of people that are currently in prison right now. And you can read their story. You can get some facts about them. Uh, One of the ladies that is currently in prison, her name is Twin, Twin Theodros. She was arrested in 2004 at the age of 23. She was a new believer. Her dad somehow struck up a deal with the people who arrested her. And so said, hey, if she'll sign this paper that says that she won't participate in any Christian activities, then she can get out. And so she actually signed that. Again, she's a young believer, so she signed that. But then in 2005, she was found at a prayer meeting, and so she was arrested again. And so, again, she was in her her mid-20s at the time. And so currently, right now, since 2005, she's been in prison. And she was actually sent to one of the most intense prisons in her country, which is Uh, Eritrea. Twin and several other women refused to sign a particular paper that they would no longer participate in Christian activity. If they would have signed this paper, they could have been let free, or at least whatever they're going through right now would have been less severe. But what Twin said is, no, I'm not going to sign it. And these other women that are in prison right now, they said, hey, we are not going to sign this. And this particular lady, we see that, um, she, she said that she will stay in prison as long as she uh, has to, and she's going to continue to serve the Lord if the Lord would allow her to do that. She's persecuted. She lives in a hostile environment. And these are just a few examples of modern-day hostility to Christianity. You see, in our little U.S. bubble, it's easy to let that be so foreign and to forget about it and push it out of our mind. But what we see is that uh, hostility does exist today for Christians And it existed in the church at Pergamum. But what Jesus said, and this is what Jesus celebrated. Jesus celebrated that they have held fast to Jesus' name. And they've not denied their faith. So point number two is this. Jesus calls us to be unashamed. He calls us to be unashamed. And so again, um, when we come to these letters, these seven letters, oftentimes we see that there's something that Jesus celebrates that he encourages and he praises about the church. And so this is what Jesus is praising about this church, that this church is unashamed. It reminds me of the attitude that Paul had when he was writing the book of Romans. If you remember Paul, he was once somebody who persecuted Christians, but then he became a Christian. He had an encounter with Jesus. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greeks. See, Jesus wants you and I to be unashamed in our faith. He wants you to be unashamed at school. He wants you to be unashamed at work. He wants you to be unashamed in your community. And to be unashamed, it doesn't mean that you walk down the, sc- uh, down the street screaming the name of Jesus and all this. It doesn't mean that you knock on every door that you can, although if the Lord calls you to do that, then do that. It means that you stand on God's word and you place yourself under his authority and you follow Jesus at all costs. So when you're in your workplace and your boss asks you to do something that goes against your belief system, you say, listen, I can't do it. And if you lose your job, you lose your job. It means that when you're at school, that you follow God's word and that when Jesus leads you to do something, you do it. And when Jesus leads you to go talk to somebody, you talk to him. To be unashamed in your faith. One of the best pictures of living an unashamed life for Jesus, I believe. And it's a, it's a one-time moment, but it's the act of baptism. The act of baptism, I believe it's one of the best pictures of being unashamed for your faith. Now, here in the States, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different here because in the States, um, Christianity, again, it's, it's, it's not, we don't have a ton of opposition but imagine being baptized in another country, in a body of water, publicly, to where everybody can see you being baptized. To do that, you've got to be unashamed. But you still have to be unashamed here. You see, when we get baptized, it's, it's somebody publicly declaring, I am following Jesus Christ. See, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then that means that the old you has died and Jesus has given you new life. That's what a baptism gives us a picture of, that when somebody is immersed in the water, it gives us a picture that the old person is dead and when they come up out of the water, it's this idea that they are a new person. Now, I don't believe baptism saves you. There would be some people who say that you do, but we see in scripture, baptism doesn't save you, but we do see that it's the first step of following Jesus. It's that step of identifying with Jesus. Jesus was baptized, and we see that people that put their faith and trust in Jesus in the New Testament, they were baptized. And I like to talk about baptism with my wedding ring. See, if I took my wedding ring off, I would still be married. Angela would still be my wife, and some of you would know that. But if I met somebody that had never met me before and they didn't see that I had a wedding ring on, they would assume something. They would assume, oh, he's not married. And it would be odd for me if I didn't wear my wedding ring. Some of you would probably say, why doesn't Madison ever wear his wedding ring? You see, my, my wedding ring, it, it shows that I'm committed to my wife, Angela. And it shows that I'm unashamed for you to see and for everybody else to see that I am committed to my wife, and so when somebody is baptized, it's this picture of them saying, hey, I'm unashamed. I'm unashamed. I'm unashamed of my relationship with Jesus Christ, and I want everybody to see, and you may be sitting here thinking, wow, you know, I was baptized at a young age, but since I've been saved, I've not been baptized. What should I do? Well, if we go to God's Word, I would encourage you to be baptized. The Great Commission says that we're to go into All the world to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can't remove baptism from the Great Commission. Baptism is a part of the Great Commission. And so right now, if you're somebody that's never been baptized... I want to challenge you that you would be unashamed in your decision to be baptized. If you're a part of Garden Hill First Baptist, man, we'd love to baptize you. If you're a part of another church, man, go there and let them know, hey, I want to be baptized. You may have made a decision to follow Christ five years ago, 10 years ago. I would still encourage you to be baptized because it is you taking a stand saying, I want everybody to know that I'm unashamed to follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus celebrates this. He celebrates the unashamed uh, attitude that the church of Pergamum has. And I believe that God loves when you and I are unashamed in our faith. So we see that Jesus calls us to be unashamed. Let's continue to look at this letter. Verse 14 says this. So just after Jesus celebrates um, the good things that are going on in Pergamum, we read this in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then Jesus tells them to repent. So our last point tonight is this. Jesus calls us to defend right doctrine, to defend doctrine. The word doctrine is simply this. It's, it's this idea of teaching. So Jesus wants us to defend right teaching, which we've already concluded that Jesus is the source of all truth, that all truth is from him. And we concluded that the church has this truth. If you're part of the church, then you have this truth especially the message of Jesus Christ. We look at God's word, the message of Jesus Christ. That is, that is the message that we have. And you and I are called to defend this message. We're called to cling to it, to protect it, to make sure that the message is not confused. It's not distorted. And so understand that this particular church had allowed false doctrines to come into their church. There were people who were preaching and teaching things that did not line up with God's word. The doctrine of Balaam, if you want to learn about that, read Numbers chapters 22 through 24, and then you can read Numbers chapter 31. We see this story between a guy named Balaam and a guy named Balak. And what we can conclude is that this guy Balaam made a, a terrible decision And we read about it in the book of Numbers. And what it did is it led God's people to commit sexual immorality, the doctrine of Balaam. And so this church in Pergamum, they have allowed people into the church to teach them. And and basically what's happening is the church at Pergamum is starting to look like the culture around them. They've allowed the culture to determine the behavior of those in the church, So there was a lot of sexual immorality that was going on in Pergamum and this was creeping into the church. And what Jesus says is you guys need to repent. This doctrine that's being taught, it's leading my people astray and you need to get rid of it. And then he talks about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Again, two doctrines that are causing the church to look more like the world. And if we're not careful, if I'm not careful about my life, if you're not careful about your life, then what will happen is you will allow what the world is teaching and it will creep into your life. And then here's what happens. It distorts the message of the gospel. It distorts that message. I've, I've heard multiple times since I've been here at this church that there are people... And again, I think a lot of churches are like this, but this is where I serve. And unfortunately, I've heard things like this, that there are certain people that will not come because of people who come here. Now, I've heard this over the past few years, and so don't think, oh, it's because of that person that's sitting on that side of the room. No, but I've heard that there are particular people who will not come to this church because of Christians who come here, because they live one way here and they live one way outside of these walls. That distorts the gospel message. It distorts it. That's what's happening here at the church at Pergamum, is you have these people who are clinging to Jesus's name. Hey, we're standing on the name of Jesus. I got my Jesus T-shirt on. I'm cranking up my Jesus music. But then there's all these other things that are creeping into their life, and it's sending a message to the world that is confusing and it is not one of truth. It's not one of truth. It's distorted. And so as believers, if we want to defend the doctrine, there's a few things we have to do. First off, we have to know God's word. We can't defend what we don't know. We can't stand up for what we don't understand. As a Christian, we got to be in the word. We've got to come to times like this, to moments like this, to study God's word. But let me be honest with you. It's not enough. If tonight was the only night you ate a meal, and the next time you ate was next Thursday night, you would be very unhealthy. But that's what we do as Christians oftentimes. Hey, the next time I'm going to eat is going to be on Sunday morning. And then my next meal is going to be Thursday night. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but what I am trying to say is if you are going to be a follower of Christ, and if you're going to be strong, if you're going to be healthy, if you're going to defend doctrine, you've got to know God's word. You say, man, the Bible is so big. The pages are super thin. How can I read it all? One word at a time. One word at a time. Start with the Gospel of John. For people that don't read the Bible, they've never read much of the Bible, I often say, hey, just start in the Gospel of John. Read a section at a time. And little by little, what happens is we begin to hear from God. So first got to know God's Word, but we can't just read it. We studied James last, last semester. And what we saw is that we can't just be hearers of the word. We've got to be doers of the word. So what we do has to match up with what we believe. If we're going to defend right doctrine, not only do we have to know God's word, but we have to live it out, which means I don't just live like a Christian when I'm here in these moments, but I live like a Christian when I'm at home, when nobody's around. I live like a Christian when I'm at school. I live like a Christian when I'm with my girlfriend or my boyfriend and nobody else is watching me. You see, this is what it looks like to defend right doctrine. And understand me, the, the, the message of the gospel is not us doing good things to earn our salvation or doing good things to keep our salvation. The message of the gospel is you and I were hopeless and we were separated from God, but Jesus came to us and offers us salvation and we simply receive it. But when we receive it, we are compelled to guard that message, to protect it, to share it so that other people can understand it clearly, so that other, other people can respond to it. I want to close with this story. This story is found in a book. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've even read it. It's an older book. It's called Jesus Freaks. And this book it includes many different stories of people who've been killed for their faith. And I want to read you a story from this book says this the communist soldiers had discovered their illegal bible study as the pastor was reading from the bible men with guns suddenly broke into the home terrorizing the believers who had gathered there to worship the communists shouted insults and threatened to kill the christians the leading officer pointed his gun at the pastor's head hand me your bible he demanded reluctantly the pastor handed over his Bible, his prized possession. With a sneer on his face, the guard threw the word of God on the floor at his feet. He glared at the small congregation. We will let you go, he growled, but first you must spit on this book of lies. Anyone who refuses will be shot. The believers had no choice but to obey the officer's order. A soldier pointed his gun at one of the men, you first. The man slowly got up, knelt down by the Bible. Reluctantly, he spit on it, praying, Father, please forgive me. He stood up and walked to the door. The soldier stood back and allowed him to leave. Okay, you, the soldier said, nudging a woman forward. In tears, she could barely do what the soldier demanded. She spit only a little, but it is enough. She, too, was allowed to leave. Quietly, a 16-year-old girl came forward. Overcome with love for her Lord, she knelt down and picked up the Bible. She wept off the spit with her dress. What have they done to your word? Please forgive them, she prayed. A communist soldier, put a pistol to her head, and then he pulled the trigger. May we be a generation... That clings to God's word. Tonight, you can make a decision to either live by this book or to live like the world. What you can't do is just continue to go on without making a decision. Because without making a decision, your decision is that you're just gonna follow the world. You see, you can't halfway follow this book. A line has to be drawn in the sand, and you have to say, God, I'm going to follow this. See, as believers, as the church, we have a message. It's the greatest message that's ever been told. People are dying for this message. There are people that are in prison right now in countries. There are people that have died for the message that you and I have. And so you and I, may we put our life under God's word saying, God, I will live by this no matter the cost. No matter the cost. And so tonight, if you would bow your heads with me, if you're a believer in the room, I want to challenge you that you would make a decision to live your life according to God's word at all costs. That you would know God's word, that you would read it, but that you would live it. But there may be some of you here tonight and you hear what I'm talking about and you know deep down that you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if that's you... I want you to know that the truth that we've talked about, the truth that comes from Jesus Christ, that that truth is not just for me. It's not just for the Christian in this room. That truth is for you. And I want to challenge you that you would begin to ask questions that you'd begin to talk to somebody that you know that is a Christian, that you you would begin to ask them questions. And if tonight you would say, you know what, I I, I want that. I want a relationship with Jesus. I want you to know that you can begin that relationship. Before tonight's over, I want to encourage you that you would talk to me. I'm not going to look down at you. I would be so, so thrilled for some of you to come to me and say, hey, I don't know if I'm a Christian, but I, I want that truth. I want to live my life like we've talked about tonight. If that's you, before tonight is over, pull me off to the side or maybe it's somebody you came with or somebody that you know that's here that's a Christian, talk to them. But we want you to know that Jesus loves you and he wants a relationship with you. And through him, you can understand your purpose and you can understand what this life's all about.